you must be listening to the Goblin Broadcast Network at gbn.com.com. Amazing! It's time once again for another episode of the Game Squad, sponsored by the Bears Grove Podcast at bearsgrove.blogspot.com. When last we left our intrepid heroes, they had received a tip from beyond the grave. Dr. Fumitaki, a toy designer and good friend of Game Bear, had smuggled out secret plans in an SD RAM chip inside a stuffed panda. He then paid for that heroism with his life, dying at the hands of a killer factory robot. The panda was sent to Dr. Fumitaki's young friend and internet chess companion, Cat Story, who we know as Game Bear's stepdaughter and secret superhero partner in crime-fighting, Story Girl. Picking up on the mythic resonance of the call to adventure, Story Girl alerted Game Bear to the SD card, which was then analyzed and revealed secret plans to a new kind of mind-control device, the M-Chip. The chip, when placed in any technology intended for fun, will simply put, make the game boring, irrelevant, and lacking any kind of literary or mythic significance. Also on the card was an audio file from Dr. Fumitaki warning Story Girl that the designer of the chip, Dr. Everett C. Bentham, would stop at nothing to make sure that his M-chip will be included in every product that renowned video game company FunCorp makes. Fearing that they may already be too late, the dramatic duo made a few phone calls and learned the location of Dr. Bentham's secret lair. We now take you to a catwalk outside the secret fabrication lab of Dr. Bentham, where Game Bear and Story Girl have discovered a maintenance door and are working on gaining entry. I can't believe Dr. Bentham thinks that this is a good idea. Why would anyone want to make a boring, soulless game? Actually, I can think of a very good reason. I think he wants to spread the power of mundanity. Aw, Game Bear, you know that the arch-nemesis bio-meme known as Dr. Mundanity was erased back on episode 220 when he accidentally fell into the meme storm we discovered in that Aztec ruin. No thought process could have come out of that alive. True enough, Story Girl, and yet, well, don't you sense it? I feel a reoccurring theme coming on. Oh no, Game Bear! Not another reoccurring theme! I'm afraid so, Story Girl. Here, can you help me with this padlock? Sure! It's just another threshold guardian, after all. Hiya! Good kick with the stomping boots, Story Girl. Come on, but let's go silently. Here, I'll add a plus five modifier to our move silently roll. Our heroes make their way through the complicated series of overhead catwalks in Dr. Bentham's factory, when suddenly they hear voices from below. Well, Harano, I think we're almost ready to begin production, eh? It's taken me a long time to get where I am today, and tomorrow will be the culmination of my lifelong plans. Hi, Dr. Summer. We have been waiting for this day for a long time. I remember the day I created the M-chip as if it were yesterday. Should I prepare the flashback device? What? Oh, no, that won't be necessary. I've consulted my evil efficiency expert, and he told me that I should use it sparingly. No need, Hirano. Please, prepare the auto-fabricators. We must complete the supply of M-chips before the assembly phase starts tomorrow. One moment, Doctor. I think I hear something. Sensing the moment had come, Game Bear and Story Girl leap from the rafters to confront the doctor. Not so fast, Dr. Bentham. 
or should I say, Dr. Mundanity. Who are you? Some sort of hairy, postmodern, self-referential egoist? No, Doctor. You've got me confused with someone else. Adam Curry, I believe. You'll not ruin our video games, you madman! Very well, Harano. We have guests. Both of you. Meet my werewolf ninja assassin! Boot to the head! Roundhouse! Uppercut! Segway! Invoking the powers of game goodness, Game Bear accelerates time. Moving faster than the ninja henchmen can think, he and Story Girl make quick work of the Wolfman in black. Ah, so you've got some sort of martial arts powers, eh? Other action figures sold separately? No. Wrong again, villain. That's Geek Fu Action Grip. Curses! Can you hold on a moment? I need to call my expert to ask what to do in situations such as these. Give it up, Bentham. The Shanaki won't help you now. How do you think we knew where to find you? The Shanaki? A double agent? Crikey. Why, where do you both come from? Why do you barge in like this? And interrupt my night's work, beat up my henchmen, and accuse me of being boring? Invoking monologue powers, That's strange. I don't seem to be able to move or do anything that might interrupt you. Thank you, Story Girl. Well, Doctor, I come from a place that is far away but very near. A place that is on an island in the Sea of Dreams, not far from the realm of the heart. The Bear's Grove, they call that place. A place of magic and wonder, myth and story. And I have power there beyond your imagining, Dr. Mundanity. Stand back from that on switch, mister. Prepare to dream in Technicolor! Are you done yet? Certainly. Thank you. That means I can do this! From the folds of his lap jacket, Dr. Bentham whips out a clipboard stuffed with forms. He mutters under his breath while filling them out. You, you've got no power here. Why, you're nothing more than black-shirt-wearing, greasy-haired slackers who live in their parents' basements. Oh no, Game Bear! He's got carbonless forms! Prepare for a bureaucracy attack! Yes, my dear. In triplicate. <laughs> Prepare to meet your doom, Game Bear and Story Girl. Will Game Bear and Story Girl fall to the powers of mundanity? Will the M-Chip go forward and make all video games simplistic and boring? Indeed. Has this already happened? Tune in next time to find out. This show is part of the Out of This World Entertainment on the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com. Be welcome to the Bear's Grove, that fortress of gamitude, that mystic skyscraper of gaming power, that secret storytelling satellite station high above the Earth. As you can probably tell, this week is our superhero-themed episode, and we have a few features this week having to do with our theme. We have a piece about the private lives of superheroes by our visiting columnist Alan Braden called By Day. And I have a piece about my experiences with superhero gaming. And you got to hear our lovely radio serial opening. But that's not all we're going to have in the podcast today. We have some non-superhero stuff. The first half of a female, a real live female gamer interview, my partner Cynthia, will be uh, this, this week. Also, we'll finish up the religion and gaming segment I started last week. 
As always, the music from this podcast is from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. We are a proud member of the Goblin Broadcast Network at gbncom.com, where you'll find so many gaming podcasts that stick shaking won't even enter into it in any way. We are also part of the Science Fiction Podcast Network at tsfpn.com and the Gaming Podcast Network at gamingpodcastnetwork.com. And a new announcement in the interest of welcoming diversity and to the practice of storytelling and role-playing, we've joined the Q-Potter Network as a gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender-friendly podcast. Welcome to our new Q-Potter friends. If you'd like the Bears Grove and want to contribute to its continuance, please don't hesitate to click the Donate button at our website at httpbearsgrove.blogspot.com. Alternatively, you may wish to purchase our special edition Bears Grove podcast t-shirt at the Cafe Press store in the Grove. If you'd prefer not to contribute, that's fine. I'd just ask that you tell someone else about the podcast and also go and vote for the podcast at Podcast Alley and add it to your favorites at Podcast Pickle. Now, without any further ado, I give you Alan Braden with his superhero gaming column, By Day. gamers. My name is Alan Braden and I'm here to provide some special guest commentary for this issue of Bears Grove, your place for adult level superhero gaming discussion. This issue, I wanted to talk to you about an often overlooked aspect of superhero gaming, a secret your hero keeps more tightly than her ATM pin number, a hero's civilian identity. Now often in superhero RPGs, the mundane ID gets the short end of the stick. That makes sense to a large degree. We play these games as diversions, not to relive our day-to-day grind dressed up in someone else's knee-high primary colored boots. Superhero play is about empowerment, isn't it? Before we answer that question directly, let's look at some classic great reasons that heroes have secret lives. First off, unlike your average dungeon crawler, a superhero is assumed to live in contemporary times. Your story mileage may vary. Contemporary times mean that when you take down the bad guy, chances are that you are not being encouraged to use lethal force. Brains, fortitude, and a good right hook? Yes! Hollow point armor-piercing rounds that do body? No! Now, a villain that stays alive at the end of episode 1 typically means someone gunning for revenge by episode 3. This isn't a hard and fast rule, but you get the idea. How easy do you want to make that revenge for them to get? 
Do you want your phone number and address Google ready? Do you want pictures of your last family reunion or graduation party floating around, just aching for someone to start painting little red X's over those smiling faces? Of course not. That's generally the reason why you wear a mask in this business anyway. Your civilian ID gives your family and loved ones a fighting chance not to be gunned down by the first mugger you send to the pokey. Home life is also a place where you can lay low yourself and rest up between adventures. Your backstory, thought out well, provides you with a cast of non-player characters whose true power is to take care of you when you're down and inspire you to do a better job of butt-kicking next time you go out on patrol. Whether they are in on your strange cape-wearing hobby or not, oh, that's another matter we'll talk about later. My second point is, unless your hero is independently wealthy, they need a job. Can you get employment beating up bad guys? Go ask your game ref about that. Meanwhile, the rest of us wage slaves will need some peace and quiet to ensure our weekly check. Sadly, though, heroing doesn't happen on a regulated schedule. Don't anticipate holding many jobs long enough to get benefits. Maybe that lotto winner character really is the way to go. But before you go buying that stately mansion on the edge of town, you know the one perched high on a cliff that conveniently overlooks both the city skyline and the local harbor? Consider that your billionaire playperson will be the focus of all sorts of unwanted attention. Seriously. If Britney Spears can't drive her baby to the corner store without someone getting a clean picture, how easy is it going to be for you to do a complete wardrobe change into uh, something more punishing and then go flying off to the rescue? Apparently, then, money doesn't solve everything, but it does make a lot of things much easier. How much easier? That's between you and the Game Master, but like I said, either way, you have to have some form of support capital coming in to function in society or to afford a roof over your head. Secret, real-life identities supply that. Another advantage of the secret identity and the need to work is what any real estate agent would identify as location, location, location. Let's run through some examples here. A newspaper photographer is expected to get close to a super battle. Yet he's also expected to stay nigh invisible so the bad guys don't apply the smackdown on him. Likewise, a journalist who worked at a metropolitan city's newspaper in the, the city department or the world coverage department would get word of the world's largest problems within minutes of their development. An archeologist would be expected to stumble over news of ancient dangerous artifacts and news about the deadly secret societies that would protect those same artifacts. Even an inspired street mechanic might suddenly find his or herself embroiled in the sinister dealings of a local chop shop gang, which would then lead to deeper and darker underworld figures. The mundane world is chock full of opportunities for needy heroes to get their episodic fix of action and adventure. It just requires being willing to work things out with your game ref and being willing to keep your cool should terrible things happen to the people close to you. Really now, come on. How many times has a certain superheroic girlfriend been kidnapped or otherwise threatened in some way? It may be cliche, but protecting these people is in a very uncertain world is one of the reasons you took on this job in the first place. Because, you know, 
It certainly wasn't about the power. Oh, I hope I surprised you there. We're going to get into some game ref territory here, but players are invited to stay tuned. Superhero games are about limits, about figuring out the puzzle and defeating the bad guy despite limits. What about empowerment and diversion? Good question. It works like this. If everything is really easy for the characters to do, then they have no challenge and you have no conflict for your story. A story without conflict and challenge for the central character sucks. It's boring. I hit the mugger with my infinite might. Yeah, the, the mugger vaporizes into a fine red mist under the attack of your otherworldly musculature. <sighs> Wake me when you kidnap my girlfriend again. Conflict and challenge are tough, but essential things for a ref to create in a game. Especially a game that features people who, by definition, can do things normal people cannot do. Having well-defined secret identities for your player characters gives you, the game master, plot hooks to rest a game on. Not everything has to be about racing speeding bullets. For role-playing based refs, you have to admit there's very little of a player's character revealed in how well they swing from skyscraper to skyscraper. Combining the super and the mundane, however, can open up whole new worlds of plot possibilities for your campaigns. Hey. April's coming. Can you finish your tax return before the alien invasion finishes you? Is dry cleaning a uniform even tax deductible? Meanwhile, the government has finally decided that mutants need to be registered. Oh, you, you aren't a mutant, but frail Aunt June can heat coffee just by looking at it. Uh, sadly, that's about it. Can you protect her and her secret without spilling your own? Hey, congratulations, it's the first day of your new job. Or is it the latest day in a series of job hopping? Without rent money, you and maybe Aunt June are going to be out on the street. Can you work 40 hours and still defend the helpless city? The last thing I want to say about player characters and their NPC counterparts, family, and co-workers is this. The further we rocket into the information age, the easier it is to find out about other people. That faithful fiancé, uh, she's gonna notice, unless they've been lobotomized by the plot device. And again, that's just cliched, bad storytelling. And we'd never want to accuse you of that. Now, figuring out how to cope with all this mess, that's a job for a hero. That finishes my commentary for this thrill-packed episode. I wish you good playing and clean phone booths to change in. And remember... The worst thing that can happen to you in a game is nothing at all. This has been Alan Braden for Bears Grove.
Today's feature is about superhero role-playing. First, some background about me. I grew up reading comic books, spending many an hour in the ice cream store right next to my neighborhood comic shop. I followed the adventures of Chris Claremont's X-Men and New Mutants and John Byrne's Alpha Flight and much excellent Vertigo comics, uh, lines such as Sandman and Time Spirits. I love the stories, the characters, the many subplots and sub-subplots, the continuity between and among book titles, the way each artist and writer work together as a team to create a mood and to further characterize the story. It's no surprise, then, that I would want to somehow emulate these wonderful stories in a more interactive, role-playing oriented venue. Back then, there were only a few choices for superhero role-playing games. The granddaddy of them all was Champions. Now, Champions is a game so that's so incredibly intricate in its character generation process that you literally have to have a character specialist in your group, someone who's completely devoted to creating characters. Somebody, in addition to a game master... You have the Game Master who understands all the Game Master rules. And you have the Character Generator Specialist for all the character rules. It was intense, to say the least. Still, for simulating the massive damage, the wild and woolly combat, the, you know, exactly how much damage did I do when I threw that bus at him, uh, that's what uh, Champions does really well. Though Champions ruled in the simulationist arena, I was more interested in a narrative style. I enjoyed boiling down all the stats and uh, and modifiers into a simple dice roll, one that I could interpret however I felt was appropriate. That meant that the TSR product Marvel Superheroes was a better choice for me. Today, there are a whole lot of superhero role-playing games. Some of them in the D20 system and some of them are not, but I still return to the free-form goodness of Marvel Superhero game when uh, I'm running my own home comic book adventures. The truth of comic books is that they are a power fantasy. The fantasy that supports them is always an answer to the question, what if I had superpowers beyond normal people? Not everybody cares about such a fantasy, but for me, it provides an intriguing diversion. It's pure entertainment, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, some of the stories do resonate deep into mythic structure. For example... The ideas of power and responsibility as present in the Spider-Man comics and movies match such things in, in literature. The deep structure of the X-Men is all about humanity. What is humanity? What makes a human a human? And it touches on the deep divisions between people who are different. Now that I'm an adult, I can see that much of the stories are adolescent power fantasies. I haven't run into many women who are compelled by these stories, although there are some who exist undoubtedly. For me, it can be fun to take a break and indulge my imagination in a fantasy about beating the bad guys, saving the world, and living to tell the tale. The best way to play a superhero role-playing game is to form a superhero group a, a super team with your super with your gaming group playing the individual members of the team solo play is another option but starting a comic book story out with too many different characters all running around doing separate things might make the game too confusing and unfocused 
designed the characters with an idea of how they all might work together. It is a poor superhero team who can't work together, especially in combat. One of the ways people have traditionally kept a group organized is by referring to individual heroes as one of an archetype. The archetypes are called by various names, but I'm going to use the terms brick, projector, jack-of-all-trades, scrapper, and sensitive as general categories. In a typical group, a brick provides strength, a scrapper combat ability, a projector distance attacks, a sensitive with sensor and detect detection and sometimes healing abilities, and the jack-of-all-trades character picks up a little bit of all of them and is, uh, fills in the holes that are left by other people. Deciding what kind of character you'll be playing before you create the character and deciding what place you'll have in the superhero team is a good idea and will mean that in the story, as in combat, you'll have a special role that is just your own, which is important. It's important, too, that the character's style all blend. You'll know that you've done well when you can literally picture the comic book you are creating interactively. In fact, that is my favorite way to structure superhero games. I pretend that each individual game session is a separate issue of an ongoing comic. That means when you have special stories, you can have what's called an annual edition, which is a much bigger and grander story usually. And if you want to take a few characters out of the main group and run a story, you can create a limited series or do a crossover story. There are a lot of different flavors in a superhero story, as superhero comics have changed slowly over the years. Starting out in the Golden Age, there were a lot of lower-powered heroes who were mainly about fighting the bad guys in World War II. They were created around patriotic themes and ideas. Then in the 60s and 70s, things went to the Silver Age, where characters took full advantage of the vibrant colors that new printing processes could provide, and the stories responded to some of the social unrest during that time, making characters more gritty and moody. There were also bigger stories with more cosmic themes. In the latest Cosmic Age, there has been an effort to make comic book heroes gritty and realistic. Gone are the spandex tights, replaced by funky leather bondage gear, and the like. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a different look. All of these different styles have something going for them. I love the Golden Age pulp style for its simplistic outlook. The Silver Age is great because I love the high drama of tragic heroes and anti-heroes. And this recent time is also interesting because it can be a lot of fun to try and see how close we can get to real life with powers, which is uh, like the movie X-Men, for example. Um, they don't run around in costumes. Uh, they clearly are um, trying to look as normal as possible. I would encourage everyone who plays a dark role-playing game on a regular basis to try a superhero game every so often. I find that spending time running a superhero game was just what I needed as a break from doing heavy, emotionally draining, and dark RPGs. A word about combat in superhero games. It is supposed to be swashbuckling and fun. It, it is supposed to break things and cause calamity. Yes, it's not literary greatness, and it's not some soul-enriching story. But it is very satisfying sometimes to just bash things with nothing morally gray about it. In the end, I would encourage you 
to enjoy superhero role-playing games and to see what's out there. There's a number of new games on the market and that are in the D20 system, and also there are uh, new specialty independent role-playing games coming out all the time, including a uh, recent game that I got for review called Bash, which I'll be reviewing in a future podcast. So, up next is our interview with a real live girl gamer. That's right. Right here on the Bears Grove. So, joining me in the studio today is the love of my life, uh, Techno Mom, Cynthia. She is uh, has um, a lot of experience gaming, although she still thinks of herself <laughs> as basically a newbie. Um, I don't think of her that way. She is definitely not a newbie, uh, having spent many hours playing... Uh, and various campaigns and various other systems. But she thinks of herself as a newbie, so welcome to the studio. Welcome to the Bears Grove. Well, thank you, dear. That was a really hard commute, you know. Yes, right down the hall. Yes. We're broadcasting to you from our secret bunker inside uh, of the, uh, well, I don't know where we are yet tonight. I'll have to, I haven't looked outside. But, um, well, uh, we haven't asked the panther or the wolf, so... No. Um, I do consider myself a newbie gamer still because I didn't game until I met you and usually we're playing with people who like you have been gaming since childhood. Okay, but you know, when you game with me though, what the thing is, it's clear to me that you have some natural talent, you have basic talent that is essentially not present in everybody and you're very serious about it, so to a certain extent, you've already passed, in my mind, the slap, the neophyte level. You know, you're basically a lot of people uh, I know think of themselves as, well, I'm just sort of a newbie. But to be honest, you've already passed a lot of the milestones that a lot of people um, have to pass to become a good role player. Well. Honestly, it's not like I like arguing against you thinking well of me as a gamer, but I think some of that is the fact that I am character-oriented, and that is your style. Well, okay, um, yeah, I'm still rough. Match, yeah. yeah, I'm still rough on game mechanics frequently, especially, I mean, we've played mostly 
D&D and even in a lot of that, we don't even get into rolling dice a lot of the time. Well, and the thing of it is, rolling dice is not the point of my of my role-playing. Typically, you know, yeah, it's fun sometimes, and sometimes it's good mm-hmm. to, to have, like, a war game kind of aspect to a game, but... Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've gamed with people who are so totally into that that they, you know, would call ahead of time and say... Are we going to fight tonight? Are we going to yeah. have a battle? Yeah, we can't, we can't use names, but... Basically, yeah. I mean, it's like, are we going to have a fight tonight? And that was the reason whether they would come up, uh, whether they would be there or not. Yeah, but the, uh, well, let's just say, I, I think we can use the the in-game name. Lady Calla's company was worth it. Yeah, I mean, that's beyond, <laughs> the, yes, absolutely. I mean, without her, um, there would not have been a lot of uh, a lot of the fun of the story. Yeah, and she was very much in character when she was here, but what she enjoyed was a very much bam, 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 bam story. Kicking ass, taking names. Yeah, and her that was her character. It was in character for her. Her character was not a person who was going to sit around and process, you know? No, no, she she would have gone out and found a fight if we weren't in one. Yeah, and frequently she did. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess really the reason I asked you on the show today is I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the concept of the girlfriend gamer and uh, some of the stereotypes you've run into, also some advice you might have for women who are out there who may or may not yet be considering gaming or maybe they are, they'd like to game but they're not sure about it or... I don't know. I mean, my my thought, I guess, in some ways, is that what if uh, I was a boyfriend who gamed and I wanted to play this podcast for my significant other, uh, what would I want that person to hear? Or is that... Honestly, it would depend on the person. I mean, what does she enjoy? What kind of story does she like? Is she a person who enjoys putting herself into a story, whether it's in movies or in novels, or does she write? You know, does she create? Does she make up stories in her head? After she finishes reading a novel, does she sit there wondering what's going on after the last period? No, that's not done. Where's the story going? Is she keeping it going? If she's that kind of person... Whether, you know, for whatever kind of universe, she will enjoy gaming. Okay. And so what you're saying is, you know, what really we'd be talking to is is the woman who has all her life read stories, experienced them in a very sort of visceral fashion, but maybe has never actually role-played because, for whatever reason, there's been that sort of girlfriend gamer barrier or that female gamer barrier uh, which does exist to a certain extent I don't understand it we've all role played earlier with the make believe and so on and we've all role played in our heads whether I should have said that I really I could have done that and then this would have happened differently but uh, a lot of people really aren't exposed to role playing you know, in high school or socially or whatever, I know I was only very marginally until I met you 
And I specifically wanted to try gaming. So for me, I was very forward saying, I want to try that. <laughs> right. And, and that was such a blessing for me because I'm always of two minds about it when I'm introducing someone new. On one hand, I'd like to, you know, bring another gamer into the fold, as it were. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, I worry about, you know, am I being, you know, too enthusiastic? I'm, am I pushing this on somebody, you know, and that sort of thing. So, I do think I should back up and say that's not the only kind of person who's going to enjoy gaming because we have played with a lot of different kinds of people, and we're not the only kinds of gamers there are. I mean, we've, been, we've played with people who are purely social gamers. We've played with people who are there to enjoy good company. We've played with people who want to hang out with neat people and interact with them, you know, doing something in a non-competitive way. Like, uh, some people really get into very competitive games, and this is not. They don't want to play football. They don't want to watch TV, which is, you know, not doing something together. This is a nice in-between, and for some people, they don't get all the way into it. And if the game is one in which, you know, their character can be maybe, you know, not carrying a lot of weight, and they don't, they want to just get, get their feet wet a little bit, they can do that and just kind of try it. Sort of like a tourist character. A to- yeah, a tourist character, and just see what it's like, and sort of... Uh, come into scenes when they feel comfortable, when they know that they can contribute something, maybe suggest, oh, wait, I happen to know that, or maybe the GM can make a a special effort, especially to say, okay, you over here, you know, the kind of things that I've seen you do, where you tell them, okay, you grew up in this area, you know this, and then give them a chance to interact, but you give them a choice. You don't make them do it. You give them a choice. You give them the knowledge and character. And then you let them do with it. They might just sit there and never do anything with it because they don't feel comfortable. And then you know that they're just there for the company. And some well, of those and people, some people take a long you know, time. Some people take a long time to warm up. Yeah, and some. I, mean, I think we had somebody who didn't get game mechanics down to like the very, I mean, didn't get, well, which dice, which dice, which dice, and what my spells, and so on, until the last game of a big campaign, and then just kicked ass, took names, and surprised us all. <laughs> you know? And that was the first part of our interview with Cynthia, my uh, partner, and we'll have the next part next time on podcast number 11. Next up, we have the final segment of the Religion and Gaming series. I hope you enjoy it. It's the second segment to last week's. I was talking about the Aurelian tradition.
Okay, so today we have the second half of the podcast segment from last week, and I hope you enjoy it. We're going to start right up in the middle of the uh, podcast about the Cult of Oriel. So if you'd like to know more about this particular segment, you're going to have to listen to podcast number nine. Thanks so much. Uh, the next question is, who is considered an adult? Who is eligible for marriage? What kind of marriages are there? Who is eligible for the priesthood? What rights and privileges does the priesthood have? Who's in charge of the church? Who decides what the church believes? Well, there is an island called Talantha, and it actually is an island of myth. It's something that supposedly went away a long time ago. But um, the Aurelians have, you know, they, they speak of the circle of Talantha, as the people who are the elders of the church. Um, now, these elders are people who are there on their own merits. They uh, developed healing techniques or protection techniques, or they did great works. They served the goddess in such a way as that they made themselves stand up, um, stand outside of the crowd to, uh, to, be, to be sort of raised above the uh, ordinary people. And yeah, I know that that sort of is a contradiction in the whole non-hierarchy thing, but it kind of works because it's more of a sort of a ebb and flow sort of thing. And even a basic priest who is right will counter an elder who is wrong. So, um, who's considered an adult? Well, uh, they, to a certain extent, they have a ritual which marks the rite of passage. So anyone who's had that ritual is considered an adult. Um, who is eligible for marriage? Well, any adult is, is, is eligible for marriage if they consent to it. What kind of marriages are there? As far as Aurelians are concerned, any people can get married to anybody else. Uh, they love they believe that love is important and that a marriage is the symbol of uh, love made solid and whole in the world and that if you want to marry each other you're welcome to do so and they will if if you're if you, it is your intent and will and consent to get married they will facilitate that however it ne it needs to happen and that that's it. between genders if you know a man and a man a woman and a woman or even groups of people, uh, four or five people, um, in a group marriage. That's I mean they don't they don't even think twice about this because it isn't about um, some law or some mores or something outside of that. They 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 say basically if you're willing to to agree to commit to each other in front of the goddess. Um, we will support you in that. And it doesn't matter what kind of terms you want to draw up. If you want to say, well, this is for just for a year or this is until, you know, we have a child and then we'll have to renegotiate everything or whatever. Um, so it's really totally left open. And in the process of doing the ritual, that is when uh, the type of marriage it is is announced and who's getting married to whom and that's pretty much it who's eligible for the priesthood well theoretically speaking anyone is but 
there is a kind of spiritual call to the priesthood that people can profess to and uh, the goddess does touch individual people's lives um, sometimes through healing um, sometimes through miracles the goddess will occasionally choose you and uh, you'll be called to serve but for the most part um, a person who wants to become a priest submits himself or herself to a temple and says I want to be a priest now Predictably speaking, because of the reputation for the religion of having a lot of sex, there'll be people who, from time to time, join the religion or join the priesthood, attempt to join the priesthood just because of the sex. And uh, that really doesn't do so well for them because typically there is a period of one to five years given to someone when they first make themselves known to the church of, okay, you want to be a priest of Oriel. That means you need to learn that sex is a sacred thing, and the best way to learn that is to sacrifice having it. So the uh, priests and priestesses of Oriel will spend a lot of time um, in abstinence at the beginning of their training. Complete abstinence. And this is not something where you can sort of mess around the side. The goddess will sense and will report to various priests and priestesses if you do have sex before the end of your time. And it'll be an unerring, um, you know, error-free kind of situation. So uh, what happens is uh, you have a calling, you get initiated into the priesthood, and then you start your path, and your path has uh, a lot of aspects to it. People who've gone through the path before help you with your path. After a while, you start to think about what house you want to join, and then the house joining is sort of another step in your priestesshood. And finally, um, at some point or another, the goddess calls you to be a high priestess, if that's the case. And when you're made a high priestess, you... Uh, you literally have a brief visit from the goddess herself and sort of in a either in the body of somebody who is inhabited by her or in a dream or something like that. So everybody who's a high priest or priestess has actually met the goddess and understands the goddess completely. Um, at least understands the goddess from her, his or her perspective. Who decides what the church believes? Well, the Council of Talantha decides that to a certain extent. However... Even the lowliest of priests can say, hey, look, this is not cool over here, and we need to do something about it. And that will get the attention of the council, and they will take action based on the lowliest acolyte's uh, idea or, or position. The, obviously, the beliefs and practices of Oriel are considered sort of fluid, and uh, they change along with the needs of the people. What are the spiritual teachings of the church? Are there spiritual beings who either help or hinder the church or its believers? Is there a supernatural opposition to the church? Well, because the cult of Oriel is not really a um, a dualistic religion um, in the sense that they don't really think about other gods. They they acknowledge the presence that are of other gods in the universe. 
because really you can't you cannot be a cleric in this world without realizing that yeah other people's clerics have power too and so therefore there must be other gods so it's not like in our world where that that question is sort of still up in the air Um, people are actively performing miracles here and so on but as far as the uh is there a supernatural opposition to the church i guess what an aurelian would tell you is look pain and suffering and cruelty are our greatest enemies but do they put a persona on it do they create a a boogeyman to get you no they don't have to because there's enough pain and cruelty in the world to uh for people to believe that it exists and that it's a it's a problem so they don't have to have a symbol of that pain and cruelty are the spirit are there spiritual beings who either help or hinder the church or its believers they do not have angels per se but they do have spirits of the living the the ever-living uh priests who came before them who have who've attained uh, a oneness with the light and therefore they can sometimes manifest on this plane but that's a very rare thing very 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 rare there is also a theory that the goddess herself will one day send an avatar again there was uh at the beginning of the of the uh, church's days there was an avatar of the goddess that is really not really talked about much in the modern modern church but uh you know she is sort of a secret that you learn about as you grow in the religion but they're hoping that another avatar will form and that will you know bring uh new wisdom to the people to the to the church but ultimately as far as angels or supernatural beings not really um who are the enemies of the church who are friends what is the position of the church on other religions or deities well i just i talked about that a little bit um the enemies of the church really are the Aelorians to a certain extent. Now, Aelor is a god of light too, but he is more about the coldness of the light. He is about strictness, righteousness, um, his view of justice and hierarchy. In many ways, he is everything Oriel isn't. Um, both religions believe they are working for the good both of them hate stated they they have stated that they hate evil but they both define evil completely differently and there are even some myths that say that there is a connection between Aelor and Oriel in their creation or in their emergence from the from the void um let's see what happens when people die is there a different afterlife for the faithful what is the meaning of life well okay um what happens when people die they uh, basically merge with the light occasionally you can call them back but for the most part they uh they become part of the great life force that exists and eventually they're you know it's kind of like you pour soup back into a giant soup pot and the soup gets all mixed up and really you can't tell individual people and the soup gets doled out again to the next group of people who are coming into being. That's the cosmic soup kitchen. It's not my idea. I stole it. But uh, that's basically the way uh, Aurelians believe uh, about the afterlife. They really aren't focused on the afterlife or some sort of great reward because they believe that 
you know, heaven's a place on earth to a certain extent. They believe that their paradise is, is something that they can create here in the world and they can, uh, and their reward is something that they get in life because ultimately, uh, you know, if you, if you are loving and living a life of peace, you should also have happiness, joy, uh, you should enjoy pleasure, you should enjoy art and all of that it uh, entails. So as a result, you really uh, don't want to die. <laughs> it's, I mean, this is all about, this is a religion of life, about living. And so the point is not to come to some great supernatural reward. Let's see, is there a different afterlife for the faithful? Nope, everybody goes to the same place. And what is the meaning of life? Well, what is the meaning of life? Let's see. Life is, the purpose of life is to live and love and enjoy and um, protect others who might be subject to cruelty and give of yourself willingly as if there was an unending supply of love, energy, power, healing. It is about learning through your mistakes and continuing on even though you are hurt or injured um, because the only way sometimes for you to heal your is to heal yourself through a long process. It is about giving unconditional love to everything that exists. So in many ways, it's a very idealistic religion. It's a very idealistic worldview. It does not necessarily work in terms of, you know, an everyday life. It's not very pragmatic in a lot of ways. Um, and in fact, the one, the clerics who have to go out into the world and live in it have to end up making a lot of sort of compromises to, you know, say, well, okay, that's how it works inside the temple. But in the real world, this is not how it works. You know, this is just part of what, uh, it's sort of a, a neat back and forth, uh, it, it's the process of dealing with something that is idealistic as opposed to something that is merely um, practical. So that's the religion of the cult of Oriel. Um, I hope I've helped you out here. Uh, we have gone over a lot of stuff, and I haven't even really scratched the surface about the everyday uh, practice of the religion or what, you know, what the robes look like or anything like that. That's not really as important as uh, from a storytelling perspective as knowing the answer to these big questions. Now, if people want, I can go into another religion on uh, another core and I religion in another podcast. But I think that for now, this will wrap up that segment and I hope that it's given you some good examples and some good ideas as to how you could use these questions to create religions of your own.
Well, that about wraps it up for the Bears Grove, number 10. I'm very happy to have you here, and I really appreciate you listening to me. Uh, The music in this podcast has been, in the opening, The Dudes in the Car by Vincent Van Gogo, uh, and Forest in the Morning by Fumitaki Anzai, and Mr. Anzai was back with his song Luna, which was the music that opened and closed Alan's column. Opening the interview with Cynthia was a song called Hell of a Boy by the Lascivious Biddies at biddycast.com. And finally, the music Celebration by Mark Hymonen. We will finish out today's podcast with a song called The Spirit World by Josh Woodward. All of this music is available for download by podcasters at the Podsafe Music Network music.podshow.com and very soon non-podcasters will be able to slip the artist some change and come away with a lovely song in exchange as always this podcast comes to you under a creative commons license 2.0 attribution no derivatives no commercial use please join us in seven days when the bears grove number 11 will have the second half of our interview with cynthia a column about nothing from alan braden the continuation of our Game Designers Toolkit series, and our special feature, which will be about sex in gaming. Until next time, sweet dreams when you get them. There's a church on the corner of the street in my town Where the blind lead the blind to salvation They surrender their wills and their ten dollar bills to the sky And it's one nation under God Indivisible with liberty and justice for some And the melting pot's only got soup If you follow the one And they'll fill your bowl If you sell your soul And the spirit world is floating by Now any brown man is feared as a killer
There's a church on the corner of the street in my town where the blind need the blind of salvation. 